0: Good morning. Good morning. Hey, good morning. I am Pastor Mike. It is so strange to see this place so empty. I was just talking to someone in the lobby that whenever we have the men's retreat, we are lower in attendance by the exact number of men who go on that retreat. But on the women's retreat, it's like double the number who don't attend. And I wonder why that is. Why do you guys think that is? Men are the worst. That's the answer to the question. Anyway... (laughs) anyway, today we are going to continue on in our series, Breathe, where we are exploring the book of Psalms, which is Israel's hymnal or songbook, and it's been compiled across the vast ancient history of the country. And I love the Psalms. It provides this very holistic image of God's people bringing their whole human experience before God. Sorrows, joys, confessions, hopes, even rage. It's all present in the book of Psalms, all together depicting this full life vision of worship that's essential to our human existence as breathing. And we're exploring this book particularly through the six major categories or types of Psalms. And last week, Scott introduced the first category, which is the Psalm of Lament. And today, we are going to turn to their opposites. But first, I want to do some greeting time, and I want you guys to think and to answer these two questions. What are you most annoyed by and most grateful for in your life right now? Tell your neighbor. I'm going to give you 30 seconds. We'll say 30 seconds. This is <laughs> Okay, that's enough, that's enough, that's enough, you gabbers. Okay, so, quick poll, and I truly do not care what your answers are, but quick poll, which of your answers came to you the quickest? The annoyed, right? Who here said the annoyed came to them the quickest? Huh, 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 if you're not raising your hand, you're not being honest. (laughs) For most, it was the negative answer. It popped into your head, while the positive answer took a few seconds. Am I right? Well, there's actually a known reason for that. It's this proven psychological phenomenon called the negativity bias, where our emotional responses to negative events instinctually feel more amplified compared to positive ones. It's believed that this was an adaptive function developed thousands of years ago. Since early humans were continually exposed to immediate threats, lions, tigers, and bears, oh my, they developed this survival mechanism because survival depended not on our capacity to appreciate nice things quickly, but rather to give greater and more immediate attention to potentially dangerous stimuli which makes a lot of sense, right? Which impacts your survival more, your ability to appreciate a sunset or your ability to see that there is a lion in the bush right next to you? It makes sense. You guys tracking with me on this? Lions, Lions ah! But here's the thing. Despite the fact that we now live in a much safer environment, this bias is still ingrained in us, producing a lot of really strange and serious side effects. For example, it's proven that our brains store bad experiences into long-term memory almost immediately, while positive ones must be held in our conscious awareness for a full 12 seconds for them to be stored in long-term memory. The brain is like Velcro, psychologist Rick Hansen puts it, for negative experiences, but Teflon for positive ones. They slide right off. And this is also why one bad moment can ruin an otherwise good day. Our interpretation of an experience has been proven to skew negative if just one part of that experience produced a negative emotion. Even if every other component was positive, who's had a good day and then you stepped in a puddle, got reprimanded at work, got made fun of, and from then on, your narrative for that day was, it was awful, anybody. That's the negativity bias. Studies show that this even impacts our vocabulary. Human language across history consistently shows that more vibrant descriptors exist for negative feelings than positive feelings. In English, it's almost twice as many. This proclivity for negative thinking is simply ingrained in our humanity. It's in our psyche. But what's equally interesting to me is that research also shows that this bias can actually be shrunk. We can actually do something about this. There's a whole host of different methods, but they all seem to share one commonality, and that is intentionality. Over and over again, studies show that through the conscious practice of things like gratitude, presence, mindfulness, we can actually rewire our brains to develop new positive neural pathways, which are hugely beneficial for our mental, emotional, physical, and relational health. And I bring all this up because it's that rewiring work that in a sense is at the root of our next category of psalm, which are the psalms of praise, where we find psalmists joyfully praising God for who he is, for what he's done, his character, his goodness, celebrating his faithfulness. And here's an insight into my strange brain. You see, I have a very strange relationship with these psalms, which is why Scott made fun of the fact that I get to preach on them today last week. See, I have found that everyone struggles to connect with at least some type of psalm. Usually it's the ones that are sad or really angry, and there's like dashing of children on rocks that's in the psalms. Don't go read it. (sighs) But for me, it's actually these praise psalms that I have historically really struggled to connect with. I think that's because for years, I considered words like joy and praise to be nearly synonymous with happiness. And as someone who struggles to experience happiness due to my temperament and my history of depression and mental illness, that made these Psalms feel incredibly distant to me, almost unrelatable, because it just felt like they were telling me, don't worry, be happy. And I was like, I don't know how to do that, bro. However, as I've studied the scriptures, I've actually found that these Psalms offer a different vision for that, a different vision of joyful praise that's far different, far more meaningful than just be happy. One that's nuanced. And I think when we practice it, capable of rewiring our brain in profound ways. And to explore how, I want to dive into what is perhaps the most familiar psalm that there is, which is Psalm 23, though I will say it might not be as familiar as we think. We begin in verse 1, where King David writes, The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures, he leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. So right off the bat, we're introduced to this famous central metaphor in the psalm, this metaphor of God as a shepherd, which is actually a credibly common metaphor in the ancient world used for describing how good monarchs were meant to provide for and to protect and to care for their subjects. And is God a good shepherd, according to the psalmist? Yes or no? Yes, he's a great one. The sheep lack nothing which doesn't mean they get everything they desire. In Hebrew, the verb here for want means necessities. It's that the sheep get or are provided with what they need, not necessarily everything they ever dreamed of. And what are life's necessities for a sheep? Shout it out. Food, Food, grass, green grass, what else? And water, quiet streams. This is what the psalm starts with. We have this good shepherd and these sheep dependent on his guidance to find life's necessities, which he provides gladly. He knows what they need, where to find it, and how to lead them to find each necessity as it is needed in their lives. And notice, he doesn't do this because they're perfect sheep or they never wander off, but because of what the psalmist says, but because of his name's sake, which is a very strange phrase for us today. But in Hebrew culture, you have to understand that one's name was thought to reveal their character. In other words, what the psalmist is getting at is that the sheep can trust the shepherd to care for and guide them because that's simply who he is. It's just his character. I mean, it's beautiful imagery, is it not? Fat, happy sheep led by a good shepherd who lounge in green pastures next to quiet streams. Huzzah! You get why the psalm is so famous. But then the psalm takes this abrupt turn. We read in verse four, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So the psalmist swerves from this image of lazy living with abundant ease to this intense description of danger, which I don't know know about you, but it it seems jarring to me how quickly there's just this right turn. But this actually highlights, I think, how familiarity with the psalm can lead us to misunderstand it. You see, in context, and you might be surprised to know this, in context, it's actually the opening imagery of abundant grass and water that would have been incredibly strange for the psalm's original ancient Israelite audience. And that's because we have the wrong image in our mind. When we imagine shepherding in Florida, we think of this, right? Lush, abundant fields, full of green grass where you can just kind of throw up fences and let them suckers feast. But y'all, Israel ain't Florida. It's a desert land of dry, rocky hills with sparse, tough grass where water is scarce and actually sometimes vanishes from a region almost entirely based on the season. More so, It's defined by these geographical phenomenon called wadi. What the wadi are, are these rugged, steep, dry valleys cut throughout Israel's hilly landscape. And that's what the psalmist is describing here. This shift isn't strange for an Israelite reader. It depicts the everyday life of an Israelite shepherd doing their job leading the flock through these wadi, a necessary and perilous part of being a shepherd. Commentator Gerald Wilson offers this great insight on this movement. He writes, in the migration through the spring landscape in search of ever-elusive grass and water, the flock must pass into into and through the deep, rugged wadi, The air in the bottom is heavy with rising heat of the day and the canyon depths are swathed in dark shadows as the rising cliff walls exclude the distant sun. At the moment of crossing the wadi floor, the pleasant scenes of green pastures and still waters would seem far removed. There's no grass or water, oppressive heat, and the whole flock must struggle up the steep sides of the canyon to resume its journey towards the next feeding I think with that context, the imagery starts to make sense. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, which is actually a hyperbolic pun in Hebrew that combines the words shadow and death, it essentially translates best as the shadowiest of all shadowed valleys. The most shadowed of the wadi. In dramatic terms, the psalmist is describing not something strange to his audience, but the normal life of a sheep. And just think about it. For an Israelite shepherd, keeping a flock alive meant moving to where the water and plants were, guiding them through wadi, through deserts for days on end at time, which meant that a sheep's life was not defined by ease, but rather by uncertainty. After a hard journey, they'd come to patches of life and they would find rest for a time. But then, when the sustenance ran out, it was back into the desert, the place of scarcity and trial to traverse these treacherous canyons that were full of risks like dehydration, falls, broken legs, death, traveling without certainty concerning where they were going or when they would arrive. And yet, are the sheep in this psalm afraid? No. The psalmist states, I will fear no evil or harm. Despite the danger, they look to the shepherd's rod and staff, the stick used to guide a flock's movement, and they find the total comfort of complete trust. Not because they'll avoid the wadi, but because they know who their shepherd is, what he has always done, and that he's with them. That they've gone on this journey before, and even though it seems dark, and dry, and hot, and oppressive, they know that every single time their shepherd has led them through to green pastures on the other side. They can trust, because they know that this shepherd is gonna lead them to where they need to go on the other side of this wadi too. It's total trust that sustains a sheep's life. And with that in mind, the psalmist concludes with this final statement of praise. Verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalmist again shifts, but this time to the concrete human realities of his human audience. Describing God now as a good host who sets a table for his people, one with things to eat, oils, and overflowing cups of wine. All powerful imagery in the ancient world. To invite someone to one's table was to offer security and intimate friendship to that person. And that's God's invitation according to the psalm to through trust enjoy intimate fellowship with him every day of our lives. And again, do you think that King David believes that that means that you will have a carefree life? No, he states explicitly right here that he can experience this in the presence of enemies, of harshest troubles. And within that, I think I begin to find a truly compelling vision of joyful praise. It's not always being happy. It isn't tied to our uncontrollable circumstances. It's grounded in trust concerning who his host is and trusting that he can experience the good shepherd's provision, love, and presence in everything and in every moment of his life, past, present, future, no matter what. Y'all, I think that lets this psalm preach. I mean, tell me if I'm wrong. We all have seasons where life feels like it's just overflowing with goodness and comfort, like we are just lounging lazily in green pastures, thinking that those days will never end. Has anyone been there before? Anybody? Yeah. But does it stay that way? Ever? No, because the nature of this life means that there always comes a point where, for reasons inside or outside of our control, the green pastures dry up, and we must wander into unknown, dark Barren lands once more, following a path that seems impossible to predict in terms of who we are in the moment. Not, I mean, has anyone been there before? Let me ask that. Has anyone found one of those green pastures fading into a dark valley? Am I the only one? But in that, in that, what the Psalm wants us to understand with our whole being is that even there, even in that journey, we can find cause for joy and praise. Not because God is going to magically turn our deserts into the Tallahassee Greenway, but because our shepherd is good at his job. He's a shepherd we can trust. One who's always with us and that because of who he is, he will not stop caring for and guiding his sheep in the green pastures, in the dark valleys of this life, all the same. It's our awareness of and trust in the presence of that good shepherd and host, our good provider God everywhere, who is in everything, who is always with us. That's the true definition of joy, the psalmist says. And y'all, I think that has transformed entirely how I think about joyful praise. Because if you're depressive like me, if joy, again, if it's about always being happy, then I guess it's just not for me. It's like shrimp, I guess. It's just not for me. But if joy is instead about my posture, my acceptance of reality as it is, my gratitude for what I've been given, my contentment with this moment and the awareness of who my God is and how much he loves me, if joy is instead about knowing that the creator of all life is with me, leading me and welcoming me to his table no matter what I'm feeling in a season of this life and that he will not let evil get the last word on me. If joy is simply trusting that God, yo, that's joy that can cast out my fears. That is joy that can sustain my life. That is joy that I can find and trust in all things. Can I get an Amen. That is joy that warrants praise. But it's also a posture that I think is much harder to develop in some ways. It's a posture of joyful praise that, thanks to these aspects of our humanity, like the negativity bias, require a fundamental rewiring of our brains. Which, y'all, bad news means one thing, according to studies, Practice, practice, practice. A commitment to intentional practice. If we have any hopes of developing what the psalmist describes here, we've got to practice. And for me, as I sat with the psalm this week, I think it highlights some components of what that might look like. I think, first, the psalm reminds me that cultivating joyful praise requires practicing remembrance. You know, we learn to trust in life's deserts by remembering, celebrating, and retelling our past stories about passing through deserts to find green pastures on the other side. And, y'all, I don't think we do this enough. We're so focused on the next thing in this country that we often fail to recall the times when the impossible happened in a hopeless situation to recall the unexpected growths that we found along the way, to recall the experiences of compassion that we felt at a bottom or at a moment where we didn't think we deserved any. We are such forgetful people, but we need to remember because if we don't remember, then what happens the next time we pass through a dark valley? Y'all, we forget, don't we? And we panic all over again, and we don't trust, and we fall apart. We need to remember our stories because it's through remembering that we remember why we trust this God. Second, I think this psalm reminds me that cultivating joyful praise requires practicing hope. Y'all, as someone who left the church young and came back, let me tell you, Christians can be the most morose, apathetic, hopeless people in this world. Oh, the world's going to hell anyway, so why bother? And quite frankly, that's offensive to me. And that should be offensive to you too, because we believe that the author of the universe has invited us by grace to sit at his table, that he loves us and he desires to guide us and that he is working to renew and to liberate all things in these cosmos. That's not a morose story. That is a story of unshakable, joyous hope, one that demands that I believe in my bones that all things can be redeemed. That no matter what dark valley I am in, there is a good shepherd who will not let tragedy get the end of his story. That's hope that should transform everything about how we see and move in this world. Is it not? But it's also a hope that is going to take practice if we're going to foster it. And for me, individually, that's meant committing to things like daily spiritual practices that engage scriptures and prayers of hope. Daily reminders that I'm part of a hopeful story for this world that's far bigger than whatever I'm feeling in a given moment. And then communally, it's required letting trusted people speak hope into my life to remind me when I forget that I'm not alone, to remind me when I'm caught up in the minutia of some tragedy or some negative puddle I stepped in that all will be well, to remind me of those truths when I get forgetful, and it's also required that I be that to others, sharing my most painful stories because in doing so, i learn learned to hope again. I learned to hope more through seeing how God unexpectedly led me through what I thought in the moment was gonna be the end of me. And it wasn't. And I get to be a source of that hope for someone else who might be in that valley right in that moment. And that's good news. So, do you reflect a joyful hope Grounded in the character of your good shepherd and the good, the bad, and the ugly? And are you sharing that hope with someone who needs it? And finally, I think this psalm reminds me that cultivating joyful praise requires practicing gratitude in the present, especially for our shepherd's presence. See, it's easier to feel entitled and afraid than grateful and trusting in the present. It's easier to get preoccupied with what I perceive to be bad in my life, sitting in my angst, dissatisfaction, insecurity, rather than acknowledging God's presence with me. But I've found growth in experiencing joyful praise in the present by practicing the conscious effort to stop, recognize God's presence, and look for his graciousness in the seemingly insignificant happenings of everyday life. By stopping and acknowledging that my daughter or son's play isn't just a silly thing going on in my house, but is actually a testimony of God's goodness. By embracing a sunset, not as just something that happens every day, but as a reminder that it's God's provision, not my will, that sustains these cosmos. By stopping and celebrating a moment of personal growth as God's grace rather than something that I chose. By stopping and saying thank you for my breath, my commute to work, my frustrating friend, family member, or coworker for a late night with baby, or the fifteenth time that my daughter Audie asks why, to a totally frivolous, meaningless thing. See, each time I do that, it's making the repeated choice to recognize and express gratitude for these small moments, which is profound because in doing so, I am reminded that none of them are owed to me. That each is a gift from God's table that each could be gone as surely as they are taken for granted. When I stop and remember that, I I recognize that this shepherd is always providing something. If I slow down and take the time to look for it, I'm always going to find an expression dwelling in his presence if I try. It's choice to acknowledge that our good shepherd is present in everything. But when we do, we learn to find and trust him in the green pastures, in the valleys, all the same. And that is a true foundation for joyful praise. That is truly good news for us in this world. Amen? Amen. So, as we close and head into a final song of worship, I just want to take a moment to reread this psalm over y'all. And I want you to reflect on where you need to receive that posture of joyful praise in this season and then to bring that into worship before a God who is good, who is with you, who is leading you, and who loves you. The psalmist writes, The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you are with me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, amen.